as we start here. Let's, uh, let's turn to the book of Colossians. So we're in Colossians, and it's been a while since we looked into this book, this letter of Paul. It was actually a letter that he wrote to the Colossians uh, from jail. He was in jail, in prison in Rome. This is about 60 A.D. And he was writing to this church in Asia Minor, which today is the uh, area of Turkey, would be where uh, these Colossians lived, Colossae. And he seems, as you read through the letter, it seems like these people were doing quite well spiritually. The problem was that there were some false teachers who were bringing in various heresies. And these heresies, in one way or another, were denying the grace of God in Christ, denying the gospel. And, of course, that's something that Paul was always going to deal with. He wouldn't let the gospel be distorted. Um, so he's, he deals with that in this letter. The great issue for Paul was that these false teachers were, were saying that Christ was not enough for full salvation. Paul's answer was to proclaim the preeminence and full sufficiency of Christ for every Christian in every situation. That's what he does throughout this letter. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, he says. And he is supreme over everything, everywhere, anytime, any place. He's preeminent in creation and preeminent in redemption. And faith in him is completely sufficient for anyone's full salvation. Faith in Christ is completely sufficient for anyone's full salvation. This was what was in one way or another being denied by these various heresies and false teachers that were coming in. So this is, in general, what the first half of the letter is all about. Let's just look at some re representative examples of this in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he, that is God, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Speaking about Christ here, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, all the fullness of the Father, to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And if you turn over to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. 
in him you, that Christian, in him you have been made complete. And then we've kind of emphasized one small phrase out of chapter 3 at the end of verse 11 where he says, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. So that's just kind of a, a very brief presentation of some of Paul's thoughts related to the, the, the fullness that's ours in Christ. He's sufficient for all things, and we have him. We were made complete in him. So, again, that's somewhat of the uh, teaching of the first half of the letter, but Paul was always conscious that doctrinal teaching has to have practical applications. You know, that should something should be something that we're always conscious of too. We do not come here just to learn doctrine. We come here to have our lives changed by what we hear. And if our lives aren't changed, you know what that means? That means you really don't have faith in the things you say you believe. Faith without works, without practical application, James says, is dead. So Paul was very, very uh, emphatic on this, that not, I'm not here just to present, he's in this letter, I'm not here just to present these glorious truths about Christ, as important as those are. I'm here to have those glorious truths made real to you so that you will be changed and made more like Christ. So... The second half of the letter, and this is just a very rough outline, the second half of the letter, verses or, uh, chapters 3 and 4, Paul takes these great truths that he has presented in the first two chapters and focuses on practical Christian living. He uses the basic truth of who Christ is and who we are in Christ to exhort Christians how they should view their new relationship with God. You see that in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. Just look down through there. This gives Paul saying, now you, you, you are entered in, you've entered into a new relationship, and here's how you should view this relationship, just as an example. Uh, verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the reality of your relationship now, this new realm that you've entered into. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he goes on and shows how uh, this uh, teaching about Christ should affect our interactions with one another, how we relate to one another. That's in verses 8 through 17. 8 through 17. You have to kind of read through this sometime on your own to see these, this breakdown. But just to give you an example of what we're talking about here in verse 8 through 17, look at verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Talking about interactions here, you see, with one another as Christians. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. So talking about how this new relationship you have with Christ and the glory of glorious uh, 
picture of who Christ is and what he's done for us should affect our lives with one another, you see. And then he goes on from there and shows how these truths should affect our relationship in a Christian family. Down in verse 18, he talks about wives. 19, husbands. Uh, verse 20, children. And then as parents, verse 21, fathers. So he's, what he's doing, you see, again, he's taking these great truths and, and applying them in practical situations. That's what he's doing. And if we go on and look, uh, starting with verse 22, he's talking about the relationship of masters and slaves, which was a very real situation back in that culture. Very common situation, masters and slaves and uh, how they should relate to each other. So you see that in verse 22 down through verse 1 of chapter 4. And then what we want to look at this morning, how Christians should relate to non-Christians. Let's, uh, let's read the section here. Um, he, he says some general things related to prayer, and then he deals with what we're going to look at this morning. But let's... Uh, Begin with verse 2 of chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open, open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So he's asking for prayer that he would, in that situation he was in, in prison, not asking for prayer to get out of prison, asking for an open door for the, for the gospel to go forth, to reach the lost, in order that I make, make it clear, in order make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And then the section that we want to zero in on, especially this morning, verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. So that's what we want to look at today. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we pray for, for your Holy Spirit now to speak to us from your word. We ask that these truths here would make a difference in our lives, practically every day as we interact in this world. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So he uses this term, outsiders. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. What, what are we talking about here? Why does he use this term? Well, to answer that question, uh, let me just point to a few places where this is used in the New Testament. And uh, you just keep your place there in Colossians, and I'll read a few of these to you. The first one is in Mark chapter 4, verse 11. This is Jesus speaking here. Mark 4:11. He says, he was saying to them, Jesus was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables. So he says, 
for those in the kingdom, he's explaining these parables, but for those who are outside, they get everything in parables. They just, it's uh, a distinction between those who are inside and outside the kingdom. So that uh, could be what he's talking about here, uh, using the term that way, because as you see in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about, we've already read that, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So you're either in the kingdom or you're outside of the kingdom. So he could be talking about outsiders that way. But he also, more common and probably what came to your mind, had to do with the idea of being in the church or out of the church, the body of Christ. And he talks about that quite a bit in, the, in Colossians. If you look, for instance, at Colossians uh, 1.18, for he is also the head of the body, the church. And you'll find that referred, the church referred to a number of places in, in Colossians. So we could be thinking about being inside or outside the church. Not the building, but the people of God, the body of Christ. Uh, you see that um, often in the in this New Testament. Let me just read a couple of examples here to you. One would be in, in Corinthians chapter... Uh, 5 and verse 12 where Paul says for what have I to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church but those who are outside God judges remove the wicked man from among you so he's using this word inside and outside in relationship to the church uh, another example would be First uh, Timothy three. Let me just read that one to you. First Timothy chapter three and verse seven, talking about uh, elders here, and he must have a good reputation with those who are outside the church, so they so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So outside, when he's talking about an outsider, he's talking about outside the church. You see a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So there, this, this concept of an outsider is used often in the New Testament and it had to do with outside the church. Uh, but maybe the best way to understand Paul's thought here is to simply talk, talk in terms of being outside of Christ. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And that's the way he starts the letter if you're... Still there in Colossians, in chapter 1 and verse uh, 20, uh, let's see here, well, verse 2, yeah, chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So, just, I mean, he starts out talking about... Christians being in Christ and if you're not in Christ you're an outsider so that's probably uh, 
I mean, all these things probably ap apply, but that may be the predominant one. Now, this is not some kind of arrogant, elitist attitude. You know, we're the in group, and then there's the out group. Uh, we're in and you're out. That's not the way Paul was thinking here. Because, and the reason we know that is because those who are in Christ desire to see those outside of Christ come to be in Christ. It's not an elitist attitude. We want people to be in Christ. We want outsiders to be insiders. We want them to be in the church. We want them to be in the kingdom. Most of all, we want them to be in Christ. Look at the way Paul puts it here in chapter 1, verse 28. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may pre present every man complete in Christ. See, his desire is to see everybody complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He said, I'm, I'm really wanting, I'm using my energy, my, I'm striving to see outsiders become insiders. Uh, I mean, you see that, you see the heart of Paul in this throughout the New Testament. I think maybe the most uh, powerful example is in Romans. Let me just read this to you because he's talking about his, his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, in other words, other Jewish people who thought they were insiders but actually were outsiders. But he says, I really want them to be insiders. I want them to come to know Christ. And he says it this way in uh, Romans 9, uh, verses 1 through 3. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And listen to what he says here. You can't hardly believe he says this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying... He's saying, I'm willing, I would be willing to sacrifice the most precious thing to me. He's trying to make the point here. The most precious thing is, of course, his relationship with Christ. And he's saying, if it, if it would make the difference for my kinsmen to become Christians, I'd even put that aside. Now, he's not saying that he would. He's just saying, he's try, I think what he's trying to do here is show how important this thing of outsiders becoming insiders is is to him. I'd take the most precious thing and hold it up as an example. So, and it's, to me it's incredible. He says, chapter 10, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might, uh, is for their salvation. So, anyway, that's the point I'm trying to make here is this is not some kind of elitist attitude or arrogant attitude when we talk about insiders and outsiders because it's just a recognition that some people are in Christ and some people are out, outside of Christ, but the pre people that are in really want the outsiders to be in too. So, Christians are, we're told in this section, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders so that they might be receptive to the gospel and because the reputation of Christ depends, at least to some major, maybe a large major, on our conduct and our speech. Let me say that again. 
We want to see people become Christians, so we have to walk with wisdom towards outsiders. And one of the reasons is, is because the reputation of Christ depends to a large measure on our conduct and our speech. If we want people to become Christians, we must rightly represent Christ before them. Outsiders, non-Christians, rarely read the Bible, but they are constantly reading our words and actions. It was said of the early church, one of the things that was said about them from, from lost people was, Behold how they love one another. That is, look at how Christians love one another and how they care about us and show kindness to us. So Paul says we must make the most of the opportunity. We must redeem the time. That is, buy up the opportunities. Buy up every situation that we find ourselves in as we are walking through this world. And that takes wisdom, you see. It takes wisdom to do what we're talking about here, Holy Spirit wisdom. Wisdom to know how to conduct ourselves in different situations and wisdom to know what to say and what not to say as we interact with people. So he's talking about our walk and our talk. You see that there? Conduct yourselves. And then verse 6, let your speech always be. So our walk and our talk is what he's emphasizing here in terms of conducting ourselves wisely before the watching world. Our ways and our words can either be wise or unwise. But the only way that we can make the most of the opportunity is to be, with, to be wise with God's wisdom. What's God's wisdom like? Well, James tells us that. The, the wisdom that is from above, that wisdom that's from God, that wisdom that he'll give you if you ask him, he says, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. That's the way we have to walk and talk. And that's what the wisdom of God will show you as you seek him to be pleasing to him. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity, making most of your time, because the days are evil. He's just, it's kind of, it's a cross-reference, you see. Be careful how you walk. Think about how you walk. Be careful. Be thoughtful. Satan will try to push you to extremes and get you to walk too far this way or too far that way. Push you to extremes. He'll try to entice you to sin. You'll have to deal wisely with people who are against you. You'll have to deal wisely with worldly deceptions and your own fleshly desires. All these things have to do with walking in a way that's pleasing to God in wisdom. It takes godly wisdom to rightly represent Christ to those around us. To show by means of our speech and our conduct the power and glory of the gospel of Christ. That takes wisdom. We're not talking about IQ, we're talking about wisdom from God. Specifically, Paul says 
that to make the most of the opportunity, we must speak graciously. We certainly cannot communicate the gospel of the grace of God through lives and words that are ungracious. Think about that. We're talking about the gospel of the grace of God. If you're ungracious, ungracious, you've just negated the message. So we want to talk about that a little bit. And I just want to say this. I, I saw this thought recently and kind of struck with me. This person said, when we think we are right, we often feel that this justifies how we act. It doesn't. We can be right in our thoughts, right in our doctrine, but wrong in our actions. Gracious speech would not be abusive or harsh or vindicative, vindicative or mean-spirited. And, of course, Christ is the pattern in this, as with all of the Christian life. Christ is the pattern. And we're told that people wondered at the gracious words that fell from his lips. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, Paul, in this letter, had previously listed some examples of ungracious speech. Verse 8 of chapter 3. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So that, that's, that is examples of un, some examples of ungracious speech. These types of speech are to be put aside by the Christian. That's what he says, put them aside. Don't, don't speak like that anymore. On the positive side, gracious speech is kind, courteous, and careful. Careful speech. Speech that seeks the good of others and the glory of God. It does not repel. It actually attracts those who are weak and heavy laden. So there should be a practical observable demonstration of gracious speech and conduct before the watching world that comes forth from the Christian. On the other hand, wisdom does teach us that there are some people to avoid. There's different degrees of opposition that we'll find. Let's just turn to this in 2 Timothy. We're trying to talk about wisdom here related to outsiders. Second Timothy and chapter 2, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So there's a type of opposition we have to be gentle with. We have to be kind to all, uh, patient. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape 
from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But now look what Paul goes on to say. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, and men, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedience to parent, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, hitters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied the power. See what he says? Avoid such men as these. Avoid such men as these. These irreconcilable, uh, malicious, hateful people. There's some people to actually avoid. Avoid such men as these. And then he actually gives an example of, uh, of this in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself. For he, is, he vigorously opposed, he is vigorously opposed to our teaching. So, there's different degrees of opposition, you see. And it takes wisdom to know how to deal with those different degrees of opposition. Jesus himself said, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before a swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They'll despise the gospel and turn and tear you to pieces. So we're talking about discernment. We're talking about wisdom here. Wisdom to recognize where to avoid and what to say and what to do in different situations. I think maybe the best verse on this uh, has, maybe anyway, is Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says, he gives another illustration here of, of animals. He's using animals in this case. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There's some people that are wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpent and harmless or innocent as doves. So as he's sending out the disciples, he says, be careful, for the, watch out for the wolves. The wolf, you know, was a terrible beast of prey, known for its fierceness, its appetite. And the sheep were not like that. He said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In the presence of wolves, sheep are in great peril because in themselves they have no effective defense. The point of the analogy that Jesus is making here is the danger that the disciples will be in uh, as they go out. There's some situations where they'll find themselves where they could be devoured. It would be one, one writer said it would be suicidal for Jesus' followers to conduct themselves during their mission without regard to the strong and vicious enemies who seek to devour them. The circumstances of confessing Christ and his word in a hostile setting requ- requires wisdom, be wise as serpent, and integrity, be harmless as doves. So, 
You know, it's amazing he used the serpent as an example, but he does. Because the wisdom of the serpent, I think we, what we should think about here has to do with his keen perception of danger and how clever he is to stay out of a situation where he's going to get tra trampled to death. Be wise. Avoiding, the serpent is wise in avoiding enemies. Um, again, a writer put it this way, therefore, to be wise as serpent refers to the ability of the disciple to avoid unnecessary contact or conflict with the wolves, and if such conflict and contact occurs, to know how to handle the situation in a way that minimizes the ability of the wolves to succeed in the attack. Jesus' disciples should not invite or provoke attacks from their enemies, but rather have behave in such a fashion that frustrates the designs of the wicked against them. It takes wisdom. On the other hand, he said to be innocent or harmless as doves, which dove is a symbol of purity, faithfulness, and that, and in fact, the dove was, I think, it's true that the dove was the only bird that could be offered as a sacrifice in the Old Testament. So it's the idea of purity and faithfulness. To be harmless as doves expresses the need of Jesus' disciples to be above reproach in both conduct and speech. And that's what we've been talking about here, our conduct and our speech. They must be clever and shrewd in dealing with their cunning wolf-like adversaries, but they must never stoop to the ethics of the enemy. They must be free from guile and evil. Sin in the life and speech of the disciple gives his foes an easy opening to discredit and neutralize his witness. So we must be gracious, but not foolish. We need to be wise. And again, we're not talking about something we can do in our own strength here, our own abilities. This is a holy, we're talking about Holy Spirit wisdom, Holy Spirit discernment. So this gracious speech that is supposed to characterize the Christian has to be, he says, seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. So what's this mean, this idea of seasoned with salt? Well, I think there's three things that could be, re be referred to here, maybe more, but at least these three. First of all, we know that one of the main functions of salt is to add flavor. But it also acts as a preservative, and it also creates thirst. So let's just think about those briefly here. May maybe all of these were in Paul's mind, but first of all, it adds flavor. I think that's the one that comes to mind the first, at least it does for me. Speech seasoned with salt is not empty, bland, or insipid. It's flavorful, zestful, and enthusiastic. I think that's part of the idea here of being seasoned with salt. Cold words won't warm cold hearts. Salty speech is not dull or flat or tasteless. There's a real warmth. There should be. Why, why wouldn't there be a real warmth and enthusiastic enthusiasm about 
are sharing with other people and just about the Christian life in general, a real warmth and enthusiasm. That adds flavor to the gospel. It adds flavor to our witness. So that's the first thing. But salt is also a preservative. It prevents decay and corruption. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupt speech proceed from your mouth. Your speech can either be corrupt or, or, or a, a preservative. Let no corrupt speech proceed from your mouth, but only such speech as is good for edification, as fits the need, that it may impart grace to those who hear. Think of that phrase. Your speech can impart grace to those who hear. Gracious speech, seasoned with salt, will be wholesome, worthwhile, winsome, and pure. Instead of being corrupting speech, it will be speech that retards corruption. And again, I just think it's amazing. Instead of our, our speech leading people or beating people down, it can actually build people up and impart grace. It can bring people close. Our speech is either going to bring people closer to the kingdom or further away from the kingdom. So it, it's, we want it to be a preservative. Also, speech that's seasoned with salt creates thirst. Speech with a salty graciousness will be thought-provoking and stimulating. It's not going to be dull. Sometimes we can accomplish more, we can create more thirst by asking questions than we can by giving answers. You know, Jesus did this often. You read through the Gospels and see how Jesus ha talked with people. He, he asked them questions quite often. For instance, who do you say that I am? That's a, that's a leading question. Who do you say that I am? Or as it was brought up earlier today, whose likeness is on this coin? Get them to thinking here. That's a, that's a thought-provoking question. Whose likeness is on this coin? Or sometimes he would say, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? he one, at one point he said, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? And several times he just asked this question here, what do you think? That's a good one. That's really a good one. You get into a discussion about uh, how there could be uh, evil in the world if God exists. Okay, what do you think about evil? What do you think? Well, Jesus did this type of thing often. Sometimes he asked questions to show people they didn't know as much as they thought they did. Sometimes he asked questions to arouse curiosity, uh, just curiosity concerning the things of God in eternity, or to cause people to think more about their own lives. So what we're talking about here, we're talking about creating thirst, salt, saltiness, you see. We need to try to draw people out by making them think. Think of, how, think of what Jesus did with the woman at the well. Talk about making somebody thirsty. I have this living water. Oh, boy. You know, spiritually, 
spiritual thirst was being created as, as Jesus was talking there. It takes wisdom. Again, we're, we're talking about something beyond us. It takes the wisdom of God to present thought-provoking statements and comments and questions. It takes the wisdom of God to make our speech to be gracious, seasoned with salt. The other thing I'd like to note here out of this section, in verse 6, is how Paul emphasizes the great importance of this kind of gracious speech. He says that our speech should be like this always. Let your speech always be with grace. And then he says uh, at the end of verse 6, so that we know how to respond to each person. This is not, you know, something that we do sometimes. Always gracious with some salt in it, whether we're speaking to a group or talking to a neighbor, whether we're talking to a rich person or a poor person, whether we're talking to a college professor or the garbage collector. whoever, wherever, whenever the situation. Even if we're discussing the weather, our speech should be gracious speech, seasoned as it were with salt. Now, you're not going to get the whole gospel presented to somebody that you're talking about the weather with, but you can speak to that person in a gracious way that will open up other conversations, or you can speak to them in a way that will close down conversations. We may not always be speaking about grace, but we should always be speaking with grace. We should always be speaking the truth in love. A caring rapport, I read this somewhere, a caring rapport gives weight to our words. God's truth cannot properly be presented without love, without this gracious attitude we're talking about here. If people sense love and sincerity, it will make a real difference in how they receive what we say. I mean, you may not even have all the answers, but if they sense love and sincerity, that's going to go a long ways in speaking to that person. Which brings me to another area. If we're going to make the most of our opportunities with outsiders, we have to press past the fear of man. Often we don't speak as we should because of fear. Fear of rejection, fear of loss of reputation, fear of being thought foolish or unloving. One thing for sure, if fear keeps us from speaking at all, our words will not be salty or gracious because there won't be any words. The salt that never gets out of the salt shaker does no good. On the other hand, if the lid comes off the salt shaker, the food's ruined. What do I mean by the lid coming off? I mean somehow we lose our self-control. That happens sometimes just out of fear. We lose our self-control and speak in an ungracious, hasty, or harsh way. It does more damage than good. We should not come across as pushy, arrogant, or with an air of superiority. Remember what 
we have, we have by grace. Anything you've got that the outsider doesn't have is by grace. Actually, that's one of the things that help us, that should help us to speak the truth in love and have a salty graciousness is just to remember from where we came. Titus 3 tells us that we are to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appear, appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So we were once that way. We were once outsiders. It's good to remember as we're seeking to present the truth to people. One, one other thing I'd like to point out is that there at the end of verse 6, it says that we may know how we should respond to each person. The fact is that people are different. Each person, has, people have to be dealt with as individuals. The wise way to respond to one individual may not be the wise way to respond to someone else. What may be too strong for one may be too weak for another. What may be too basic for one may be too advanced for another. So again, it takes wisdom. Uh, you know, age, temperament, background, social situation need to be considered. This is what Paul meant by that phrase that he uses in First. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, becoming all things to all men that he might by all means save some. He had a different approach with the Jew than he did with the Gentile. You know, when we're talking about this thing of reaching outsiders, if you look up on the internet, you'll see that there's some people that really emphasize friendship evangelism, or sometimes it's called relational evangelism. And then there's others that emphasize confrontational evangelism. It's not an either or thing. It's to know what God wants you to say in that situation, to have the wisdom to know, the discernment to know how to present the gospel to that individual in that particular situation. I'd say one thing for sure, our dealings with other people should never make them feel like projects instead of individuals made in the image of God. And I think people can tell the difference if we have a genuine concern for them as fellow human beings or not, or if we're just a project. Now much of what I've said here today, we're just about ready to bring this to a close, but I wanted to emphasize one last thing here. Much of what I've said here today can be put under the heading of tactfulness. That's something we don't hear much about, being tactful. That has to do with skill in dealing with people. 
the dictionary defines it as that delicate perception of the right thing to say or do without offending. And then I added a little uh, caveat, needlessly, without needlessly offending. The gospel offends, but we don't want to needlessly offend by being untactful. One Christian writer, William Hendrickson, said this. It is, we're talking about tact here. It is the skill which, without any sacrifice of honesty or candor, enables a person to speak the right word at the right time and to do the proper thing in any given situation. The tactful person does not shrink his duty even when he is convinced he must admonish or rebuke, but he has learned the art of doing this without being rude. He's humble, patient, and kind. And again, you know, we just don't hear too much about this thing of, being, of tact in the Christian life. But actually, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this. So let's turn to Proverbs. Proverbs 15, there's so many places in, in the book of Proverbs, but I just wanted to point out a few. This was a very well-known one. A gentle answer turns away wrath, wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So just, just a gentleness, a gentle answer can defuse a lot of situations. Verse 2 the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. You have some knowledge you want to impart. Well, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools sprouts folly. Verse 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. You're going to either have words of life or words that crush the spirit. Verse 23, A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. Just the right word at the right time. We're talking about tact, you see. It can bring joy. An apt answer. Verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. It's not wrong sometimes to ponder how to answer a person. We don't just have, we don't say the first thing that pops up into our minds. Sometimes it take it takes time to know the wise and and helpful thing to say in certain situations to certain people. We often needlessly offend because we're not careful not to do so. Righteous persons ponders how to answer. And if you turn over to Proverbs 16, verse 23. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So you don't just say the first thing that pops into your mind. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth. You need to have your words being taught to you, presented to you from, from, this, from your soul, from the inner man, what God's showing you to say. 
and then the one that uh, fits into the illustration that I give gave clear at the beginning of the message to the children. Verse uh, or chapter twenty-five, verse eleven. Remember the the silver tray and the dustpan, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Or it can be translated in its in its right circumstance. In other words, how we present something is vitally important. It can be like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. Every message that people receive from us is filtered through the messenger that delivers it. And back to that illustration, how the apple is presented to someone makes a lot of difference whether they will want it or not. We have a tremendous apple to give people, the gospel. But how it's presented, the way it's presented, will make a big difference. One writer put it like this, a lovely medium enhances the attractiveness of the truth. Or you could put it in a negative way. What is perceived as an unloving, ungracious, disrespectful presentation will be hard to receive, harder to receive. So tact is important. And just to emphasize this, I wanted to read something from Hudson Taylor. Now, you know, you might say, well, this sounds like something that uh, Dale Carnegie would say in his book on how to win friends and influence people. But I'm not quoting Dale Carnegie here. I'm quoting Hudson Taylor. And here's what he said. He's talking about disrespect that some of the missionaries showed towards Chinese customs and protocol and the way things were done in that society. He said, some persons seem really clever at doing the right thing in the worst possible way or at the most unfortunate times. Really dull or rude persons will seldom be out of hot water in China. And now listen to this. And though earnest and clever and pious, you're earnest, you're clever, you're pious, they will, have no, will not affect much. In nothing do we fail more as a mission than our lack of tact and politeness. Now that's incredible. That's not Dale Carnegie, that's Hudson Taylor. Tact. Well, a gracious, tactful, loving character will catch the attention of outsiders. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, repeatedly demonstrated this quality of gracious speech seasoned with salt. He he interacted with peoples in in ways that were full of grace and truth. What about us? Well, the best way, I think, by the grace of God, to learn and live what we're talking about here is to meditate on Christ and how he interacted with people the way he dealt with people, and then to ask God to make us that way 
make us more like Christ each day. Gracious words and actions come from a grace, a work of grace in our hearts. You, you're not going to produce this on your own. It has to come from a work of grace in our hearts. So we need to look to God for this ability, this wisdom, to make the most of the opportunity. Earlier in this letter of Colossians, Paul had prayed for the Colossians. Um, he says, I've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's praying for them to have wisdom, spiritual understanding. Now, at the end, towards the end of the letter here, he's asking them to pray for him. Because he wanted to make the most of the opportunity that he was in. Didn't seem like a very promising opportunity. He was in prison. But nevertheless, he said, pray for me. Pray for me. Uh, that I may show, speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison. In order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. He wanted to be able to speak clearly and boldly and graciously and wisely, and he knew he needed God's help to do that, so he asked them to pray for, the, for him. Well, all right. In closing, then, I think it might be good if we would just take verses 5 and 6 and turn them into a prayer. As we start the day... Get up in the morning and say, Lord, help me to conduct myself with wisdom towards outsiders today, making the most of the opportunity. Let my speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that I might know how I should respond to each person. We're going to walk through the world this day. We need wisdom. We need to be able to, to speak to outsiders making the most of the opportunity. So just turn those verses into a prayer. We need to ask God to help us to buy up the opportunities to be blessings to those around us. As Christians, you and I are to be the salt of the earth. May it not be that we lose our savor or cease to be gracious in our dealings with those outside of Christ. Father, we ask that these truths related to our speech and our conduct would more and more become a reality that we might show forth the glory and the wonder of Christ to a watching world. We ask for help. We ask for your Holy Spirit. We recognize that these things are far beyond us. Just to, be, just to have gracious speech that's seasoned with salt takes a work of your Holy Spirit. So help us, Father. Help us to start our day just with the attitude of, of asking that we would make the most of the opportunity and that we would conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.